Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season seven, episode nine, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 2007 vampire flick, 30 Days of Night. It stars Josh Hartnett, Melissa George, Danny Houston, Mark Boone Jr., and Ben Foster. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Are you still here? Okay, then let's get this morning started. So according to the Wikipedia page for the film, 30 Days of Night author Steve Niles conceived of the story in the form of a comic, but after meeting a lack of interest in initial pitches, tried to pitch it as a film. When this did not work out, Niles shelved the idea until he showed it to IDW Publishing. IDW published the comic and Ben Templesmith provided the artwork. When Niles and his agent John Levin shopped the comic around again as a potential film adaptation, Niles found that the idea went shockingly well with Sam Raimi. By October 2002, Niles was working on adapting 30 Days of Night for the big screen, keeping the film true to the miniseries through fleshing out the characters more significantly in the adaptation process. In February of 2003, Columbia Pictures partnered with Senator International to work on 30 Days of Night, which was developing under Senator International's newly established production company, Ghost House Pictures. By March of 2003, Niles had turned in his screenplay, but producers still felt that it needed some polishing, so they hired Pirates of the Caribbean writer Stuart Beatty to rewrite Niles' draft, which he finished a year later in October of 2004. By September 2005, British director David Slade was set to helm the film. Slade, at the time, was fresh off the thriller Hard Candy and would later be known for directing the interactive Black Mirror episode Bandersnatch. In March 2006, Slade revealed that screenwriter Brian Nelson, who wrote the screenplay for Slade's previous film Hard Candy, was writing a new draft of 30 Days of Night, replacing Beatty's draft. The director said that filming would begin in the summer of 2006 in Alaska and New Zealand. In June 2006, it was announced that Josh Hartnett was cast as the husband of the married couple that serves as the town sheriff's team. Some criticized the choice because the main character was originally Inuit in the comics. Ugh. Yeah. Man, what a bummer. Listen, I love Josh Hartnett, but that was a huge (laughs) no-no. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. At one point during production, concern was expressed that while the vampires needed to communicate, talking might seem less effective. To counter this, a fictional vampire language with clicking noises was constructed with the help of a professor of linguistics at the nearby University of Auckland. 
Slade explained, quote, we designed this really simple language that didn't sound like any particular accent that you would be aware of that was based around really simple actions, eating, hunting, yes, no, really basic because that's what vampires do, unquote. 30 Days of Night was released in almost 3,000 cinemas in the United States and Canada on October 19th, 2007. In its opening weekend, the film grossed about $16 million, placing it first in the box office. The film eventually grossed almost $40 million in the United States and Canada, and about $36 million overseas, for a total of $75 million worldwide. The film opened to mixed reviews from both critics and audiences, with many critics, including Roger Ebert, calling out the various plot inconsistencies but praising the unique depiction of vampires. So not much has changed regarding horror fans and critics' views on the film, but there's no doubt that 30 Days of Night is a standout staple, not only in regards to early 2000s horror films, but vampire films in general. Mm-hmm. With that said, Abby, would you please remind us all of the plot? Sure. The residents of Barrow, Alaska are getting ready for their annual 30 Days of Night, a natural event during the winter months when there is an extended period of darkness. Many of the residents decide to leave the town for the month and go south, including a woman named Stella, who is estranged from her husband, Eben, the town's sheriff. However, due to a car accident, Stella misses her flight out of Barrow and is trapped there for the next 30 days. Meanwhile, a strange man rolls into town on foot and kills the remaining resident sled dogs, steals and destroys the phones, and also destroys the only town's helicopter. The stranger is apprehended and taken to the police station. On the first night, a clan of vampires arrive in Barrow and slaughter many of the remaining town residents. Eben, his younger brother Jake, their grandmother, and Stella, and a few other residents take shelter at the police station. The stranger reveals that he is a human who wants to become a vampire, and that he sabotaged their only way of escape so that the vampire clan's leader, Marlow, will embrace him. The vampires eventually raid the police station, and the residents escape. Marlow kills the stranger without turning him. Eighteen days go by, and the, red- and the residents have been living in the attic of an abandoned house. During this time, the residents discover that the vampires only die from gunshot wounds if they are shot in the head, and they also discover that beheading the vampires works too. Eben and Jake's grandmother is dead at this point, as well as many other residents, and soon a blizzard hits, so Eben and some other residents take this opportunity to go to the general store to get food and other supplies. A young vampire girl attacks Eben and the other residents, leading the other vampires to the survivors. One of the residents tries to blow himself and the vampires up, but he is unsuccessful. The explosion does, however, cause a distraction, and the remaining residents are able to escape from the attic and back to the station house. Unfortunately, one of the residents is bitten in the process, and he asks Eben to kill him before he changes. More time goes by, and Eben sees someone trying to signal them across the way. Not realizing that there were more survivors, Eben and Stella go to save whoever it is. They discover that it is Eben's deputy, Billy, and that he has killed his wife and daughters. Eben and Stella take Billy back to the station house, but they discover that the rest of the residents have made their way to the Utilidor. On their way there, Stella finds a little girl who is being stalked by a vampire. Eben distracts the vampire, helping Stella and the girl escape so that they can hide under an old truck. Eben and Billy make it to the Utilidor, but a vampire follows them and bites Billy. 
Eben kills the vampire and then kills Billy before he turns. With the 30 days of night coming to a close, the vampire clan realize that they have lost and decide to incinerate the town to cover their tracks. Stella and the little girl, still trapped under the truck, are in danger of burning alive. Eben knows that there is no way they can stop the vampires as they are now, so he takes some of Billy's infected blood and injects himself with it. Now a vampire, Eben attacks Marlowe and kills him. Without a leader, the rest of the vampires scatter and the town is saved. As the sun rises for the first time in 30 days, Eben and Stella sit together and watch it, just like they did on their first date. Eben's skin begins to burn and flake, and Stella holds him tight as he dies in her arms. So tragic. It is so tragic. Oh. I kind of like it, though. (laughs) Well, you know, it's not a vampire story unless there's some tragedy in it, honestly. It's true. Well, thank you, Abby, for that lovely plot summary. You're welcome. So, the Bechtel test. Um, no, it doesn't pass. Ugh. Yeah. Like, I, the little girl doesn't have a name as far as I know or can remember. So, like, her mm-hmm. interactions with Stella don't technically count because she doesn't have a name. Oh, that's disappointing. Yeah, let me know if I'm wrong, but I couldn't find the little girl's name from this movie. But, so, yeah, doesn't pass, but Yeah. Okay, so Nancy's dream team test. Um, <laughs> This is also really bad. Was the supporting <laughs> cast... <laughs> At least 50% women in no. Was the film written, directed, edited, or produced by a woman? No. Was the final girl or main character a person of color? No. And this is a huge shame because in the comic book, Eben is Inuit. So yeah, they really fucked that up, didn't they? Oh my God. (laughs) So that's embarrassing. (laughs) Uh, Were there any openly LGBT plus characters in the film? No. Yeah, so let's get into our discussion. What exactly is the 30 days of night in Alaska? So, yeah, um, it's kind of interesting that they, well, I guess for the film, it made more sense to only have 30 days of night. Um, But in Barrow, it's America's northernmost town, and it experiences 60 consecutive days of night contrary to the plot of the film oh and yeah and according to road tripper due to its extreme location barrow is one of the few cities in the world to experience a phenomenon known as polar night which incidentally sounds like a rad name for an indie band (laughs) basically barrow residents don't see the sun for 60 consecutive days of each year it's night for 1,440 hours straight. God. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Um, They do experience twilight each day, though, and the length of twilight decreases until winter solstice when it only lasts for a mere three hours. (laughs) Then, after that, the twilight lasts longer and longer each day until the sun finally peaks over the horizon around January 22nd or 23rd. I just feel like I would be really sad all of the time. Same. Same. I would definitely have to have one of those like UV lights that they talk about in the film. Like, give me like seven of those, please. Oh, my God. I mean, I can barely like make it by in upstate New York. I can't imagine. So, yeah, let's talk a little bit more about Barrow. Um, It's kind of a town on the fringe, right? Like, 
It's out in the middle of nowhere, kind of creepy in its own right. And um, in an interview with Den of Geek, Stephen Niles was asked why he decided to use a real town when writing 30 Days of Night. And he said, quote, at one point, I did use a fictional name, but I love that it's a real place, so I went with it. I live in L.A., and before that, I lived in Washington, D.C. Both cities are used in films a lot, and a lot of liberties are taken, so I thought it would be scarier to use a real place, unquote. Yeah, I completely agree with this, honestly. I think there's a real sense of unease when a real place is used in a horror movie setting, because Mm -hmm. it just feels more real. Like, this could really happen here. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I also think that the town was actually recently renamed to Utiadvik in 2016 by Inuit natives. So I think it's sort of like a time capsule as well, like this real town, Barrow. And, you know, like it, its name was recently changed. But like there is a real history to this town. And I think that that's why it's so important, you know, that this is a real place, basically. And I yeah. think that there's... I don't know there's like I said like there's this history there that um if you do like a little bit more research about it like and you're you'll explain in a minute but I think you have to be a certain type of person to live in this place like this yeah absolutely I mean it's desolate it's out of the way it's kind of a place where like misfits can gather together and still be left alone kind of And it gives the film that same feeling that John Carpenter's The Thing had, like where you're stuck in the middle of nowhere, no telephones, no contact with the outside world. And like the generators go down and you're forced into that like fight or flight survival mode that makes the film so realistic and frightening. Yes. And this actually reminds me of like a desert town in the Wild West. Yeah. In a lot of ways, this town is very much like the little town like in a in a western that's invaded by strangers like kind of like the the plot to the magnificent seven like that kind of western and in an article entitled 30 days of night survival will cost your humanity by brandy blahnik uh they say quote it's worth asking why anyone would live in a place where night falls for over two months. The inhabitants of Barrow are already uniquely suited for isolated life and they know the bitter reality that to survive in this climate, they must prepare and respect its ferocity. They are threatened just as much by the outdoors as the predators lurking outside. It's under those conditions the film shows us who is built for survival and at what cost, unquote. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of like a perfect segue into the next topic, which is like how this film is basically about relationships and community and humanity. Like even though obviously it's a vampire movie, it says a lot about who we are as people. And in a town as small as Barrow, it's hard not to know your neighbors because everyone relies on each other. It is literally a means of survival. So the inhabitants, like, sometimes reluctantly, have become, like, this large family, essentially. And the Coven of Vampires is basically just a darker reflection of that community. As humans, we're meant to live in communities that help us thrive no matter the circumstances, and it's a testament to the human ability to be able to survive in really harsh conditions with another threat on top of what exists in nature. So it would be next to impossible for someone to live out there alone in a place like Barrow 
between the freezing temperatures and like constant state of darkness and your lack of supplies and etc the town bands together in order to save themselves from the threat of ancient vampires who eventually pick the town off one by one but not without a fight the vampires in this film also use their sense of community to hunt the townspeople which leads me to believe that there's still a little bit of human left in there like Mm -hmm from their features to the way that they communicate and provide for each other. And like the same goes for the humans when it comes to creating this, like these ruthless survival tactics in order to kill the vampires, like both ends of the spectrum represent what it's like to live in a society where people rely on each other, but it kind of goes deeper than this. Like the townspeople are also very invested in Eben and Stella's relationship because mm, it's a small t- it's it's that like whole small town thing sure but i think a big part of it is because they believe in the strength of relationships in general they're kind of proven right by the end of the film that no matter what when you love someone you like stick together and you make those sacrifices to protect your family and you know, in the end, Eben makes the ultimate sacrifice in order to protect what little of the town they have left. And Stella kind of realizes, like, maybe they could have made it work regardless of their differences. So it's like a little bit of relationship drama, yes, but it the scope is a little bit bigger than that because survival is on the line. Right. And, you know, Blahnik mentions Stella in their article as well and how Stella makes sacrifices similar to Eben. And uh, they say, quote, one of the few characters to meet Olsen's, which is Eben's, uh, level of sacrifice, level of self-sacrifice is his estranged wife, Stella. When she spots a blood-soaked little girl roaming the streets on her own, she dives in to pull her to safety before anyone else can stop her. She knows it could end up costing her life, but she refuses to abandon the girl even when it seems there's no hope of survival without doing so. Stella, like the other characters, provides a glimpse at the line between existence and independence. There is a cost to survival, after all. At some point, it demands your humanity, unquote. Yeah, something else that really caught my eye about this film, too, speaking of Stella, was that the women are just as intelligent, cunning, tough, and ruthless as the men. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like you mentioned, we see this mostly in Stella and Evan, but, like, as far as being salty enough to make it in the Alaskan wilderness, the women match up equally to the men. Like, we'll talk more about the women in the film later, but I think this film beautifully portrays what it's like to be, like, stripped down to the bare bones of what it means to disregard gender when it comes to surviving. Yeah, and we'll talk more about the women of of 30 Days a Night and especially of Alaska in just a sec. Um, but let's talk about these vampires, because <laughs> they're different. Yes, I love them. <laughs> You know, I think they're great. Yes. At first glance, the vampires in this film appear human, but I believe that they are more accurately, like they more accurately fall under Nosferatu type vampires. And if you play Vampire the Masquerade, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, But there, there is a wide variety of vampire clans in the game's lore, Um, but also 
like Nosferatu are big in general vampiric lore as well. There's this great little article by Ashley Abercrombie about the four types of vampires in lore. And uh, they say about Nosferatu, this type of vampire is infected with varying strains of the vampire virus whose ultimate origin is indirectly demon in nature. It's been said that there is a strain of this virus with like a pandemic capability similar to the zombie virus, thereby creating the potential for a vampire apocalypse. So this, to me, explains why the vampires shown in this film have a zombie-like nature to them. Wow. Going back to Vampire the Masquerade, the Nosferatu are also very disgusting and ugly. And because of this, they have to hide in the shadows and wear like hoods and like hide their hideousness in any way possible. If they are seen by a human at night, they might ruin the masquerade and endanger all other vampires. Ooh. Yeah, so the whole point is to never be noticed by the humans without embracing or killing them. So it's hard for the Nosferatu clan to hunt like other vampires. And I love how at the end of the film, they have to resort to burning Barrow to the ground because it's the only way, as Nosferatu, they won't break the masquerade. So it's really interesting. Wow, that is so cool. Like, I really like the fact that at first, like, you can't really tell if they're human or vampire until, like, you're really able to stop and take a closer look. And it kind of, like, it falls into that, like, uncanny valley feeling a little bit. And it makes them super frightening, in my opinion. Like, the clan itself also looks like a mashup of a lot of different like backgrounds and personalities. Yeah, like you could you could see that they were once like very different types of people when they were humans. Yes, yeah. So like you know that there must be more out there in the world than this small group. And for not having much of a backstory, it allows you to sort of like create your own narrative, which makes it scarier and cooler as an audience member. And Another interview with Den of Geek, Stephen Niles described his inspiration for making the vampires scarier, faster, and more ruthless. When asked why he decided to make them more vicious and animalistic, he said, quote, simply because vampires weren't scary anymore. Dracula has become a joke. On TV, vampires date teenage girls, and we have breakfast cereals named after vampires. When Anne Rice humanized vampires, she was pulling vampires from B-movies and making them sophisticated creatures with feelings and emotions. That was new then. It revolutionized vampires. Unfortunately, it also tamed them. Rice made us want to be vampires. I wanted to make them scary again. It was really just that simple. The vampires in 30 Days of Night could care less about seducing you. They want your blood and all the begging and praying in the world won't stop them, unquote. You know, in the same article by Brandy Blahnik, they expand on that and they say, quote, unlike writers Stoker, Rice, and Meyer, Stephen Niles offers no comfort or allure to the victims of Barrow. His vampires are hideous, monstrous, cruel, and wholly uninterested in convincing mortal humans otherwise. It's oddly refreshing. 
there are no humanized or romanticized vampires in this world. On screen, the predators are depicted as feral hunters, initiating a town-wide massacre upon their arrival to Barrow. In place of sharpened incisors and snake-bite wounds, these vampires snarl with mouths of shark-like teeth, tearing the throats from their victims in a dramatically bloody display. Ditching the romantic tropes of longing, lust, and envy for eternal life, 30 Days of Night is, at its core, a film about survival. Pinned down and isolated, 152 people must survive 30 days of terror with no means of escape. It's a premise not unlike the one in Dawn of the Dead, unquote. And again, that takes us right back to this being like zombie-like vampires. Yes, and I think because of this it taps into like the more primal side of what it means to be human also and what goes hand in hand with that side of ourselves it is a physical manifestation of the shadow self but like on steroids (laughs) these vampires seek out helpless humans that live in remote areas because they are predators and While there is a leader, clearly, they all demonstrate the ability to be ruthless killers, and they're pretty diverse. So this could mean that they're a reflection of that more primal side in everyone, like worldwide. So why is this film so effectively creepy when it comes to the vampires? In an article for Headstuff.org, Eva Ellis Bagnall says... Quote, unlike the vampire movies before it, which were more glamorous and often pantomime-esque with eccentric villains and romantic plots, Slade's film presents vampires as cold and calculated killing machines, as well as taking great advantage of a number of classic horror tropes. Complete with black eyes and razor-sharp teeth, these guys are far from human, nothing sexy about them. The general vampire mythos tends to be that vampires were at one stage human, but unfortunately fell victim to their creator. In this film, however, they are a species unto themselves, a coven of vicious predators constantly hunting for their next banquet of nice, hard-working Alaskans. What is perhaps more terrifying about them is their implied superiority to humans, They speak their own ancient language and mock humans for their belief in God and hopes for mercy. Their leader, Marlowe, played by Danny Houston, showing a particular disdain for us mere mortals. Another thing that separates 30 Days of Night from the typical vampire genre is the lack of a main antagonist. While Marlowe is indeed the leader of the pack, he is not given the same reverence as characters such as Dracula or Kiefer Sutherland's David from The Lost Boys. They aren't dastardly bad guys to be reckoned with, but instead, straight-up monsters. 30 Days of Night also deviates from the good versus evil status quo of vampire films. Generally speaking, the formula goes as such. Vampires, bad, attack, plus (laughs) noble hero, good, fights back, equals evil, vanished. Instead, the creatures wreak havoc with a bit of resistance from the townsfolk, but then just move on to the next unfortunate village, minus a few of their mates. The fact that the monsters aren't actually destroyed in this film, even in spite of the noble sacrifice made by the protagonist, makes it all the more chilling. Furthermore, 
Vampire films are known for their protagonists almost willingly falling victim to their assailant because they're sexy, and as such can become quite predictable, sticking to a general formula. 30 Days of Night instead makes use of building up tension and really amplifying the sense of isolation. The sense of dread slowly grows with the arrival of the vampire's pet human and the destruction of the town's power sources, vehicles, and even, brace yourself, dogs, unquote. So that was a really long quote, but <laughs> she, <laughs> she, she sums it up so perfectly and like, it's the reason why I love this film so much. And it's kind of like, I kind of compare this film to like 28 Days Later a lot because it's just a different style of the same monster that we've seen over and over. But it's so terrifying, you know, and I think I don't think people realize how different it is because these vampires are sort of like zombies. They don't really think they're like, oh, I've seen this before, but not really. You've seen zombies act like this, but you've never seen vampires act like this really before. So if you really think about it, it's like, yeah, it's a very similar scenario to like, say, Dawn of the Dead. But the monster is completely different because zombies aren't intelligent but vampires are and that's why this is really frightening yeah (laughs) because they attack like zombies and rip you to shreds but they're smart like humans maybe even smarter yes it kind of makes me think of like i am legend too where like i feel like that film tried a little bit too hard to make them like creepy vampire zombie type monsters here like it's so like visceral and like you feel for these characters so much because you're like oh my god you're like so helpless and out in the middle of nowhere well listen the vampires in i am legend that movie all the movies based on that book are never get it quite right (laughs) because like um, the vampires in those are very intelligent and they're afraid of the main of the human like the Will Smith character they're afraid of him because he kills them he's a monster he is the monster in I Am Legend and um, we don't know that though because we see it from his perspective you know and if you and this is all of a sudden a review of I Am Legend but if you like watch like like say creature from the black lagoon from the creature's angle um he immediately becomes the good guy <laughs> you know yes and yeah. um and then you you flip and reverse it and you're like oh snap no he's actually the monster and that's exactly what i am legend is about is that the humans are the human in the the one human in the film is the monster and the rest are helpless like they're victims to him Yeah, and that's one reason why I really like how you mentioned earlier how, like, this whole film is just about survival. It's survival for the humans, but it's survival for the vampires as well. They have to eat. Yes. And this is their way of hunting. And, I mean, like, this is such, like, I can't believe that this plot has not happened before. Because this is such a great, this concept of vampires going to the one town... (laughs) That has 30 days of night or in real life, 60 days of night and eating the people that decide to stay during those that time. It's that's so brilliant. (laughs) Like it really um, 
knocks you down a peg or two because you think as a human like you're on top of the food chain and then you are living in a place like Barrow and you're like fuck yeah I got this like (laughs) (laughs) if I can survive here throughout like all this whole month of darkness and like still come out on top and like survive it and like keep going with my life and just keep moving forward I'm good like some people like can't hack it so like that's pretty impressive for me and then you have like these vampires roll into town and you're like oh no (laughs) like I thought I was okay but I guess not (laughs) right you're put to the test and you're having to survive something really crazy but I mean and then you think about it like yeah these vampires have to also survive really the crazy situations like their whole life is is survival like they have they can't be in places during the day they'll die like certain things kill them too just like humans and so it's it's really great to see like these two types of humanoids going up against each other and you know who will survive and you know what's really funny is that you you kind of do figure out that the most powerful people or the most powerful creatures in this are the vampires because the only way you can beat them is become them holy shit i didn't even think about it that way but that's crazy so really the vampires do win because the one human one human in this has to become one in order to defeat them Man, that's so crazy. And it's like, if you think about it in like a a bigger sense, like these vampires are nomadic and they always have to be like on the move. And when you think about that, you, you sort of think about like before humans became domesticated, really. And like you, you just had to keep moving in order to keep surviving. And then you have this town of people who is supposedly superior because they have settled in a place and they've learned to survive and live there. And it's like, it just blows everything you know about, like, the evolution of humans out of the water. Because you can't survive by staying in one place. You just have to keep moving. And that's what they do, like, throughout the entire time. The the whole entirety of the film, they move from place to place so that they can't be found by the vampires. And in the end, it doesn't even work. It's like... Right, exactly. It's so wild. Amazing. So, hey, let's get into our final thought, the women of 30 Days of Night. Yeah. So, like I mentioned before, when we talked about the community of Barrow, the women here are fierce. Like, (laughs) oh, my God. But before we delve into the characters, mainly I want to talk about Stella here because she's our, like, main heroine. Um, Gracie, can you talk about what life is like for women in Alaska, as well as some of the problems they face there, vampires aside? Yeah, sure. So one of the biggest risks for women in Alaska comes not only from, like, the wilderness itself, but the high rate of sexual assault. In a really alarming article found in The Atlantic, it is stated that Alaska is the rape capital of the U.S. According to statistics provided by the author, Sarah Bernard, quote, In its short history as a state, Alaska has earned an unnerving epithet. It is the rape capital of the U.S. at nearly 80 rapes per 100,000, according to the FBI Uniform Crime Report. 
Alaska's rape rate is almost three times the national average for child sexual assault. It's nearly six times. And according to the 2010 Alaska Victimization Survey, the most comprehensive data to date, 59% of Alaskan women have been victims of sexual assault, intimate partner violence, or both, unquote. What the even hell? Okay, so I think this is important to mention because if we're looking at this from a social standpoint, like you might be like, okay, Gracie and Abby, what even does this have to do with this film? The vampires have become a metaphor for how threatening life can be for women in a setting like this. Like one of the first victims in the film is a woman who is attacked in her home and she's dragged out into the barren, frozen land of Alaska. The vampires, much like those who perpetrate assault crimes against women, are predators. But, like, that isn't the only interesting point to this statement. Yeah, so the same article states, quote, "...the causes of the violence are complex and entrenched." Government officials, law enforcement personnel, and victims' advocates note the state's risk factors from an abundance of male-dominated industries like oil drilling and the military to the state's vast geography with many communities that have no roads and little law enforcement. And this is a quote from Linda Chamberlain, who is the executive director of the Alaska Family Violence Prevention Project, quote, There are so many factors that tip the scale for Alaska. Not the least among them, the lack of strong law enforcement presence for support services of any kind in remote towns like Tanana. It's easier for perpetrators to isolate their victims and not get caught and for people not to get help, unquote. And some believe that this fact both attracts and encourages criminals. The suspect for a recent rape in Southwest Hub, community of Dillingham, for instance, was a white man who just arrived from somewhere in the lower 48 to take a job at the Wells Fargo in town, quote, because it happens in rural Alaska, unquote, one victim advocate cautions, quote, doesn't mean it's only rural Alaskans who are a part of it, unquote. So yeah, so here's a stranger who comes into town and uses the advantage of it being isolated to rape people. Yeah, it's insane. And with that being said and considered, I think it's safe to say that a lot of threats for these women come from the outside, like we were just talking about. When the clan of vampires invade the town, they become the main source of danger for the women in Barrow. And the last thing they have to worry about is the 24-hour darkness, running out of food and resources, or freezing to death. It's the predatory nature of the vampires. So it's super frustrating to think that even in a place as barren as Alaska, you cannot escape male threats. And that's not to say that it only happens to women, because I'm sure that it happens to men also, but it's just insane to me. So with that being said, I want to move onward to our main character, Stella. Well, our main female character, I should say. I love her character for a lot of reasons. She's the fire warden. She protects herself and others, and she's attempting to do what is right for her by leaving her husband behind instead of being smothered in Barrow. 
Even at the behest of many of the town's citizens, she's insistent on doing what is right for her. But even when the situation isn't ideal, she doesn't have a meltdown because she doesn't have time. Like, she keeps it together and she does what she has to to keep Eben and the townspeople safe. And I think that, like, her character is just, uh, it becomes this, like, personification of what it means to be, like, a strong woman in a setting like that. Like, everything that could be going wrong in her life has gone wrong and she is still like she's on point with her reactions and like what she does to protect people and even like how she treats Eben even though they're going through like this really rough patch or what seems to be the end of their relationship she isn't portrayed as like a a typical tropey female would be I think. Right. And she's also not portrayed as like the, you know, the hysterical ex-girlfriend either. Right. Because it's not realistic. Like, I feel like we have finally gotten a realistic look at a female character in a situation like this. And it's very refreshing. And I, I love it because it, it... it's kind of like she was one of the first female characters in horror that I noticed like around this time that was like very steadfast and very like she just did what she needed to do in order to survive. And I think that really any woman in her shoes would have done the same thing. So it's really awesome to have her like be kind of our final girl for this movie, really. Right, and she and she owns up to her mistakes and she knows when she has done something wrong. She apologizes to Eben and says like I'm sorry that I left you. Like I'm sorry that I put you through this this shitty relationship because we don't really yeah. Do you remember why they're not together? Do they explain that? So in the movie they kind of briefly touch on like the fact that Eben didn't really want to have children. Mhm. And she really wanted that. I love that because she is also, she's got a career. Like, she is involved in law enforcement and she's like, I think she is the fire warden, really. Like, so she has a lot of responsibility, but she still, like, kind of wants to have a family and, like, settle down and that kind of thing. I love that they show both sides of that because I think it's easy for a character like that to be, like, I don't know, either obsessed with their career or obsessed with having a family and being upset that like Eben didn't want to really settle down and have a family. No, she was willing to be like, you know, I'm sorry that we're not on the same page and I'm sorry that, you know, we went through this, but I left you because of this reason and that's why. You know, it's not like they not, they don't get back together in the film, which I love. Right. They're right. they're friends really at the end. Like they have this like last moment together. Like so this him dying is r- literally the end of their relationship, but it is metaphorically the end as well. Like she's sort of free to kind of move on and so is he almost in the afterlife at least. So. Yeah, and I think that, you know, he kind of got what he wanted because Eben, to me, seems like the kind of person who he is like a protector. And that's what he does at all costs, no matter what. And so for him to be given that, like, at the end, I feel like it's kind of honorable, really, to his character. Mm-hmm. 
And yep. it's also honorable to Stella's character. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Good Morning Nancy. Abby, thank you so much for all of your hard work and research. You put a lot into this episode while I was trying to move, and it was really great. So thank you. Oh, of course. I loved it. I love this movie, and I love being able to talk about this kind of stuff. So thank you, Gracie. (laughs) You're welcome. Okay. (laughs) You guys, don't forget to check out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs and sweatshirts and t-shirts and more. Head on over to goodmorningnancy.com slash merch and click the shirt icon, and that will take you right to our shop. And if you're not already a patron, go to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy for some sweet extra content in your coffee. We upload full-length episodes early, give away patron gifts, and review horror trailers, TV shows, and new movies over there too sometimes. So become a patron, won't you? Yeah, you can also help support the show by following us on social media. Facebook at goodmorningnancy, Twitter at goodmorningnan, and Instagram at goodmorningnancypodcast. You can also help us out by telling a friend and spreading the word about our show. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye.